You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Nikita, MD, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Torso, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Pablo, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today, we're going to be talking about Captain William Kidd. The plan originally was to talk about Thomas II and to tie his story back to William Kidd, but it was filled with so many references to what we're talking about today, it was almost incomprehensible. My notes had the phrase, We'll get back to that next time, a grand total of eight times, and I was trying to hold back. The episode just didn't make sense without the stuff we're going to talk about here today. In fact, that's part of the reason that today's episode is late. I had a whole show recorded, but it was awful. It's going to make a lot more sense if, next time, I say, remember when we talked about five or six times. So today, it's the story of William Kidd, New York, and the cabal of pirates that made New York a pirate haven. This is episode 200, Kidd in New York. We last left William Kidd at the end of a privateer cruise that lasted from the summer of 1689 to the 2nd of February, 1690. That was the cruise on which William Kidd took the pirate ship Saint-Rose from his French captain, Jean Fantin. Now this was widely seen as a respectable move. England was at war with France, stealing a French vessel from a French privateer and using that ship to attack French targets isn't piracy, it's patriotism. William Kidd was something of a hero. He renamed his ship Blessed William, only to have her stolen out from under him while he was ashore on Nevis. The ringleader of that mutiny was a man named William Mason, the quartermaster, on board Blessed William. When the deed was done, Blessed William set sail and caught a wind that carried them southwest, directly into empty 
Caribbean waters. Not an ideal position, admittedly, but when you just stole a vessel, you have to get away as fast as possible, and that means going wherever the wind takes you. Once Blessed William was safe, the crew elected Robert Culliford as their quartermaster, and a few days later they arrived off the coast of Venezuela. In his biography of William Kidd, Captain Kidd and the War Against the Pirates, Robert C. Ritchie writes, quote, Blessed William needed supplies before the crew could decide where to go next. As usual, it was the Spanish who were to pay for the supplies. Mason and his crew captured two Spanish ships and raided a town on the island of Blanquilla, acquiring foodstuffs, slaves, money from ransoms, and 2,000 pieces of eight in other booty. End quote. William Kidd, as you might imagine, was furious with his former crew. He spent a fair amount of the money that he made privateering to buy a new ship, the Antigua, and he hired a crew, not a privateer crew, to be paid on the basis of no prey, no pay, but instead he paid them a wage, and a good wage, to ensure their loyalty. William Kidd chased the Blessed William around the West Indies for several weeks, but never even got close. In the end, he put in back at Nevis to await word. Unbeknownst to William Kidd, while he'd been scouring the Caribbean, William Mason headed for North America. Now, their first stop might have been Rhode Island. At least, we know that William Mason was from Providence originally. His father was a tavern owner, and his mother was the daughter of a former president of Rhode Island, Samuel Gorton. His family was well-connected there in Rhode Island, and financially well-off. Not rich, but they did okay. Being from Providence in the time that he was, there is almost zero chance that William Mason did not already know Thomas too. A landowner there in Providence and a family man, we can't say for certain, but Providence wasn't that big. However, Blessed William would not have stayed that long in Rhode Island. The governor was a newly elected Quaker named John Easton, who we met last time. He had not yet, but was about to employ Thomas Paine in the fight against Pierre Le Picard. However, Governor Easton was not inclined to employ William Mason. He was, if we're being charitable, a privateer. But he had just stolen his ship out from under his English captain, who was a hero in the war against the French. The governor was not fond of pirates. Instead... William Mason and Robert Culliford, aboard the Blessed William, headed for New York. Now at this moment, New York was in turmoil. The colony was under the control of Governor Jacob Leisler. He was that German merchant and soldier who named himself governor after Edmund Andros was overthrown. At this moment, Jacob Leisler was desperately in need of ships to guard his coastline, and that was when William Mason showed up in his well-armed privateer vessel. Leisler granted him a commission to sail out of New York against the French. They were to do so in the Bay of St. Lawrence, and over the next several months they had good fortune. They captured at least seven prizes worth keeping. Six of those they sent back to New York, as they were supposed to do, but either one of these ships or two William Mason kept for his own fleet. One was a large merchantman that Mason gave over to his quartermaster, Robert Culliford. The now Captain Robert Culliford named her the Jacob, presumably after Jacob Leisler. 
Culliford sailed back to Providence to outfit the Jacob for a long voyage. He gave her enough big guns that she could officially be classified as a frigate, and the men on board Jacob voted another of Captain Kidd's old shipmates named Samuel Burgess as the quartermaster. As for William Mason and Blessed William, I have some conflicting information there. We know that he sailed alongside Culliford to Providence, and it's there that he's noted aboard a ship called Horn. This might be one of the French prizes taken in the Bay of St. Lawrence, or it might be the Saint Rose, renamed Blessed William and again renamed. I like that possibility for the continuity of it, but by 1690, San Rose was an old ship. She'd been a Spanish vessel for years, before falling into the hands of French privateers and then the English. It's more likely that Mason sold or scuttled Blessed William and took her guns to outfit his new vessel. Whatever the case, the careening and outfitting of their ships took some time, but while they were in Providence, the situation in New York changed drastically. In January of 1691, two ships landed. The first carried Lieutenant Governor Richard Inglesby and about a hundred soldiers under his command. The second ship carried a few more soldiers under Lieutenant Benjamin Fletcher, who we should all remember. Both of these men were hand-picked by the Lords of Trade back in London, which we will get back to. They were chosen for the job of ousting Jacob Leisler from power. But Leisler was ready for them. He fortified his position in the recently renovated Fort James and reinforced his position with a battery of six guns. That's actually the origin of the name Battery Park, still in use in New York. The walls of Fort James were enough to keep Inglesby and Fletcher at bay. But while all of this was going on, another ship under the newly appointed governor of New York named Henry Slaughter traveled down to the West Indies. His job was to collect men and munitions for the fight against Jacob Leisler. But while he was down there, Henry Slaughter ran into none other than William Kidd. Kidd agreed to sail the Antigua, filled with guns and powder and soldiers bought on the governor's dime, up to New York alongside Henry Slaughter to reinforce Inglesby. When they arrived, Jacob Leisler realized he was outmanned and outgunned. He fled New York City for Albany. Slaughter set up shop in the fort, which he rechristened Fort William. Inglesby chased Leisler to Albany, but really, none of this matters. All three of these men are going to be dead in a few short months. Henry Slaughter will die probably from alcohol, Inglesby will die in battle, and Leisler will be defeated and executed. But what's worth note in all of this is the relationship that blossomed between Benjamin Fletcher and William Kidd. In the little civil war against Leisler, they fought side by side, and when the war was over, and Fletcher was in de facto control of New York, he presented William Kidd with a 150-pound reward. Then he put William Kidd in charge of New York's... I almost called it a navy, but it's not. This is not a Royal Navy position. These were four privately owned vessels. Three that carried Inglesby, Slaughter, and Fletcher to New York, and then, of course, Kidd's own Antigua. 
Still, though, without privateers, that was what New York had to defend herself from the French. Captain Kidd became kind of Admiral Kidd of a privately owned New York Navy. Now, this could have been the moment for a real showdown. William Kidd's former mutineers were still over in Providence refitting their smaller fleet, but it wasn't to be. While the privateers were waiting in Providence, a sloop that was filled with some industrious sailors arrived. That sloop was led by a man named Edward Coates, and he had news for Mason and Culliford, news of the war, of Leisler's defeat, defeat of the man who had given William Mason his commission, and news of William Kidd, their old captain, a man that they had all wronged in a position of power. It's likely that Edward Coates already knew something about their past, that he knew Mason and Culliford and Samuel Burgess would not be able to return to New York. Edward Coates and his men knew they were getting in on the ground floor of a pirate cruise. Now, there isn't much information about this cruise. Our two best sources on the Pirates of the Round come from Adam Baldridge, who was still in New York when they left, and Mughal officials, who were not yet concerned with Pirates of the Round. And, of course, from the London presses. But that's all stuff we'll get into next time. There is a bit to talk about that. For now, the Jacob, the Horn, Samuel Burgess, Edward Coates, Robert Culliford, and William Mason all set sail from Providence to cross the Atlantic and head to Madagascar. Back in New York, William Kidd took his 150 pounds and bought a piece of property, and a house on what would soon be known as Dock Street. But he was still short on money. Kidd had a mind to marry a beautiful young woman named Sarah Bradley. Her full name was Sarah Bradley Cox Ort, thanks to the needlessly confusing and patriarchal naming conventions of the 17th century. See, Sarah Bradley was twice widowed. Her first husband was a Mr. Cox, and her second was Mr. Ort. Mr. Ort died in May 1691. It was Captain Kidd that swooped in here. Sarah Bradley was not only young and beautiful, but she was cultured and wealthy and very well-connected. It's not at all out of the question that her husband was killed, possibly poisoned by Sarah herself, specifically to marry William Kidd. Sarah Bradley's first marriage to that Mr. Cox allied her and her fortune to the government of Edmund Andros. When Andros was overthrown and Jacob Leisler took control of New York, that's when Mr. Cox died and Sarah remarried a Dutchman, a well-off Dutchman named Mr. Ort. Now that Leisler was out and a royally appointed governor was in, that's when her husband died under mysterious circumstances. A mere ten days later, Sarah Bradley remarried a dashing Scotsman and personal friend of Governor Fletcher, William Kidd. Now, we'll never know how much of a role, if any, that Sarah Bradley played in the deaths of her first two husbands, but my money is on a big role. Everybody. 
everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. See, her money was her money. Sarah Bradley was in control of all of her family's wealth and estates, and she'd grown that wealth by a significant portion since inheriting it. She was a canny and cunning woman, but still, that's a dangerous position. To be one of the wealthier people in New York, but still married to a man allied to the wrong side, just wouldn't do. Then this young, handsome, dashing sea rover shows up with his own ship, in command of a few dozen well-armed men, who just happens to be personal friends with the governor. William Kidd was New York's most eligible bachelor, and I believe that Sarah Bradley took the steps necessary to make herself New York's most eligible bachelorette. Following their wedding, Governor Fletcher took some steps to secure William Kidd's friendship. But before he could do so legally, he had to secure the royal authority. And how exactly he does that is worth looking at. Fletcher's two superiors, Richard Inglesby and Henry Slaughter, both died, leaving Fletcher in charge. Fletcher wrote to London to officiate his position and received a letter back doing just that. It had the king's seal and everything on it, and that is the short version. But of course, there's more to the story. For a moment, we're going to shift gears here to talk about politics back in England. And, yes, this is important, so bear with me. In the wake of the glorious revolution of 1688, King William and Queen Mary worked hard to curry favor from both sides of the aisle. In the 17th century, that means the Whigs and the Tories. And after the revolution, they were more or less united behind the new king and queen for a little while. The Whigs were a traditional liberal party. They supported expanded parliamentary authority. The Tories, on the other hand, were a conservative party that supported a stronger monarchy, but controlled by the Tories. That was the basis for most of their fighting in the House of Commons, but they still both vied for influence with the king and queen. However, as the quick little war against King Louis of France, a war that... William insisted on as that war dragged out year after year and became more and more expensive, one side of the aisle grew disillusioned. The conservative Tories wanted out of the war. They pushed to pull the English army off the continent. They even passed a bill to defund the war as long as the army stayed away from home. They argued that the army belonged in England to defend their shores. This almost ended the war. 
England had awful credit. Nobody was going to lend them money, and without parliamentary funding, they couldn't pay to continue the war. King William, though, had an ace up his sleeve. He countered the Tories openly, publicly. He took a large pile of funds from the royal coffers that had been granted him upon his ascension, and encouraged the Hublone brothers to take them and found the Bank of England. That's how England funded the war. Now, we know that story, but it infuriated the Tories. They pushed for a bill to abolish the Bank of England almost as soon as it was created. MPs got up in the Commons and argued that national banks were improper in a monarchy, that national banks were only for republics. And this was an attack on the king, a personal attack. William III, Prince of Orange, came from the Netherlands, and the Netherlands were a capitalist republic. Making this attack in the commons was an attack on the vile, foreign king and his anti-English ideas. Now that bill failed. The Bank of England survived. But it means that the bipartisanship that William and Mary once fostered began to wane. More and more they supported the Whig Party because they supported the war. It seems counterintuitive, but the Tories, the party for royal authority, turned into the opposition party against the royal authority. With the backing of the king and queen in 1691, the Whigs won a powerful majority in the parliament. They were virtually in control of the English government. Now, there are a number of movers and shakers politically that we're going to introduce in the weeks to come, but I want to introduce this shift here. Political affiliation is about to become very important to the story of piracy. Today, though, I want to introduce one name in particular. William Blaithwaite was a Tory, a conservative, a member of the opposition party, but he held a rare position of real power in the government. He held a seat in the Commons, but more important was his position with the Lords of Trade. Now, in 1691, the Lords of Trade and Plantations were still kind of an unofficial body. I mean, not really, they were a thing, and everybody knew it, but it would be some time before they were a codified part of the English government. Officially speaking, there was a Lord of Trade. He was a member of the King and Queen's Privy Council, and that was it. But in reality, the Lord of Trade was the head of a large governmental department. Now, in 1691, the Lord of Trade was mostly concerned with the East, with India. He delegated the rest of the empire's affairs to his second-in-command, William Blaithwaite. That means the West. In effect, the West Indies and America was Blaithwaite's business. Blaithwaite played an integral role in the... Charter of Massachusetts, the appointment of William Phipps, he signed off on John Easton in Rhode Island. Nothing big happened in the American colonies without the go-ahead of William Blaithwaite. Now, the governorship of New York was not a small appointment. Admittedly, Benjamin Fletcher was already there. He was doing the job already. But he secured his position as governor of New York by putting himself directly in Blaithwaite's camp. Every American governor, every successful governor, was on that same page. 
not because they supported Tory policies necessarily, but because of Blaithwaite. It wasn't just blind obedience to the will of William Blaithwaite, it was a two-way street here. Thanks to William Blaithwaite's Tory ideology, most of the colonies didn't have to pay taxes back to London for the war, or they paid fewer taxes than the rest of the empire. That means, of course, that they didn't get much in the way of war support, no armies, no supplies, and no naval units to guard their shores. If the French attacked, then they really only had one option in the colonies. As we've seen time and time again, thanks in large part to William Blaithwaite's policies, they had to rely on privateers. And time and time again, those privateers turn to piracy. Because of this association, it would not be long before the Tories became synonymous with pirates. They became the piracy party, at least in the opposition press. Now, the Tories might not have gained that label had Governor Benjamin Fletcher of New York not been so willing to openly embrace privateers and later pirates. As soon as word arrived that he was officially the governor with the king's seal on his appointment, Benjamin Fletcher fought for William Kidd, and of course his super-rich, super-influential wife. One of the first big policy questions in Fletcher's career arose over those ships, those six or seven vessels that William Mason, Robert Culliford, and Samuel Burgess sent back to New York from Providence. If the law were strictly adhered to in this case, those ships should have been sent back to their French owners. Jacob Leisler was a criminal. He was a usurper who had no right to commission privateers. That makes Mason and Culliford and Burgess pirates, officially speaking. Since it was pirates that captured those ships, they should have been returned, but New York was not about to let those fat, rich prizes slip through their fingers. So Benjamin Fletcher called a court of the Admiralty. The first man to bring a case before the Admiralty court was William Kidd. Kidd alleged that months earlier his ship Antigua had suffered an encounter with one of those French prizes, a ship called Le Pierre. Therefore, he argued he was entitled to a share of the profits from that prize. The problem here is that the sale of that prize was currently in legal limbo. Now, whether or not Antigua really did have a run-in with Le Pierre is not the question at hand. Instead, we have William Kidd, hero in the war against Jacob Leisler, savior of New York, husband to the wealthiest woman in town, and a personal friend of the governor, telling the court that he was owed money here. Because even if he was lying through his teeth and everyone knew he was lying, Everyone also knew that the former governor employed men who stole William Kidd's own ship not two years ago. It appeared that William Kidd was very much owed money. Now, of course, they could pay him from New York's coffers, which were currently empty, or they could take this opportunity to recognize Le Pierre as a legitimate prize, property, of New York, and sell it. And, naturally... As a bit of a cherry on top, they didn't even have to cut in the privateers who captured it, since they were now, legally, filthy pirates. 
The Admiralty Court of New York, under Benjamin Fletcher, agreed in Kidd's favor. They legitimized Le Pierre as a prize belonging to the colony, which set a precedent for the others. Beyond that, the pirates under William Mason were outlawed. William Kidd, at last, had his revenge. The Admiralty put Le Pierre up for sale, and one of New York's finest swooped in to buy her. A very, very wealthy Dutch merchant named Frederick Phillips bought Le Pierre and incorporated her into his trading fleet. Now this was a simple and smart business decision. But of course we know that in just a couple of months' time, Adam Baldridge will set sail on a ship that we cannot properly identify to build an illegal trading hub on St. Mary's Island. We know that Frederick Phillips and Benjamin Fletcher both invested in that mission to Madagascar, a mission that would establish a pirate haven and kick off the golden age of piracy we know far more than anyone at the time suspected. What we can't be sure about is exactly how Phillips funded this obviously illegal venture. We can never really be totally sure about that. Phillips had a bunch of business dealings and plenty of opportunities. But this sale, to me at least, is suspect. If I were planning on laundering thousands to supply a pirate haven halfway around the globe, this admiralty decision would make an excellent opportunity. Perhaps it even provided the ship that would later disappear at sea. I can't say for certain that is what happened, but if it is the case, William Kidd was very much complicit in the whole affair. It was William Kidd that set the wheels of justice in motion for the sale to take place, and it was William Kidd who profited from it. He earned 500 pounds sterling from the sale of Le Pierre. Now, we've maybe had our expectations skewed a bit when it comes to money on this show. Usually, whenever we talk about a pirate's share, it's at least a thousand pounds, but those are the exception here. 500 pounds was still quite a bit of money in 1691. Enough that William Kidd was able to buy a very fine home at 119-121 Pearl Street. Kidd's home on Pearl Street, though, was the kind of house from which he could hold dinners and parties, from which he could entertain New York society. It was the kind of house that suggested wealth, which his wife, at least, did have. It was the kind of house that a young man could use to launch a career in politics. And it looked for a moment that that might be the road that William Kidd intended to follow. Kidd and his wife Sarah invested a not insubstantial sum in a project that was dear to many hearts there in New York, including Frederick Phillips, the construction of the Trinity Church. William and Sarah's investment helped build Trinity Church, and they bought a pew for their whole family a family which did not exist yet, but which William and Sarah set about building immediately. There are records of frivolity from inside the kid household on Pearl Street. Parties, certainly. Sometimes they involved heavy drinking and lascivious dancing, not exactly the kind of thing a proper gentleman might enjoy. But then there was the lovemaking. Sarah Bradley was quite vocal, in the throes of passion, so much so that the neighbors took notice. This could have just been how it was. Loud, passionate sex between newlyweds is not unexpected, but there might be more to it, if you're a cynical person. 
Captain Kidd was not a gentleman. Sure, he came from a landowning family in Scotland, and sure, he was educated and literate and spoke at least three languages, and he was mannered and proper, but Captain Kidd was a privateer. At least that's the image he chose to portray. Captain Kidd, the privateer, was the kind of man that was known to throw wild parties where they serve rum where the women wear exotic dresses and dance exotic dances, where the men have earrings and carry blades, the kind of party where maybe you would hear just a bit of Spanish guitar. Those parties thrown by Captain Kidd, remember, a privateer, were just a little bit dangerous. And I even heard that that rapscallion is such a rogue in his lovemaking that Sarah keeps the neighbors up to all hours. Isn't it just the worst kind of scandal? But tell me this, imagine that you are a young, rich, and influential person coming up in New York society, someone hoping to make a name for themselves. For whose parties are you going to be absolutely certain to secure an invitation? Whether it was intentional or not, William Kidd was building a reputation in New York and he was getting noticed. He received accolades and positions of power and authority in New York, but he never strayed too far from the sea. He wanted everyone to remember that he was a privateer and almost a pirate. Because that was a singular distinction in New York. William Kidd was alone in that it made him special, unique, and exciting. But that distinction was not going to last. Next time, we're going to follow William Mason, Robert Culliford, Edward Coates, and Samuel Burgess to the Indian Ocean. And then we are going to follow they and Thomas too, back to New York. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, wherever it is you listen to the show. And everybody who has recommended this show... You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight